Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? If you have a Bible, open it to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to stare at two verses this morning. Some of the most glorious verses in the whole Bible, and certainly in 2 Peter. Let's get right to it. Let me read the text and then pray. Peter writes this. We just started this series through 2 Peter. If you're joining us for the first time today, we're glad you're here. Our custom is to just work through books of the Bible, and we're in 2 Peter towards the end of the New Testament. Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let me pray. Lord, this text is so beautiful, so important. Help us to understand what you are saying through your servant Peter to the church, to us. Sanctify us by your word, Lord. Your word is truth for believers that are gathered together in this room and are listening online. Make us more like your son, Jesus. And for friends that are listening or here this morning who do not know you, as we have already prayed several times, Lord, I pray by your sovereign grace that you would give them a new heart, that you would perform the miracle of salvation that you alone can do in their life. And that you'd give them a new heart so they can trust in Jesus. Lord, be glorified. Help me. Get out of the way and let your word and your gospel stand this morning so that we might see Jesus. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. My mother makes uh, a dessert called a seven-layer bar. And it's my favorite dessert. In fact, she would make it for birthdays and such when I was a child. And every now and again, she will ship it from California to Georgia. She'll wrap it up in a bunch of foil and make it priority and it'll come and it'll, I'll open it up and it's just, it's absolutely glorious. It's as the name implies, seven layers of deliciousness. There's chocolate chips, there's butterscotch chips, which are really underrated. There's coconut, there's some sort of nougat material in there. I don't know what it is, but it's good. It's gooey and it's fantastic. There's a bottom layer of kind of graham crackery crust. And when you bite into it, it's just layer after layer of deliciousness. And that's the way this text is this morning. I I know sometimes I can get carried away and I've been prone and been accused of hyperbole at times and I, I am guilty as charged. But verses 3 and 4 of Second Peter are just full of spiritual 
glory and goodness for the Christian. Here's my goal this morning for us is we're just going to stare at verses 3 and 4 and make some application to our life as we go through. So we're just going to work through the points of the sermon are really verse 3 and verse 4, and we're going to stare at these words. So let's, let's look again at verse 3. Peter is telling us, he's explaining more fully in verses 3 and 4, what he's established in verse 1, that he's writing to these people that have obtained a faith equal in standing with ours, the, the believers that he's with, the apostles. How have they done that? By the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, that's verse 1. And then he prays, he's asking the Lord that the grace and peace of the gospel would be multiplied in the lives of these people. And it's as if he has, before he gets into the rest of his letter, a further, a kind of thought bubble where he wants to explain in more detail all that God has given to the believers that he's writing to and subsequently us in the gospel, in Christ, in this faith that they have obtained. And he says in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now this half sentence is one of the most magnificent statements in certainly this letter and in the whole Bible. It's telling us that God, I think specifically here when he says his, the reference is specifically to God the Son Christ, his divine power has granted, it's given, not because of anything, and the clear implication of this word granted is that he's given it to us by grace. It's nothing that we do. He's given us everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. So I think that, and this is really the title of the sermon, I think that this first half sentence is really the point of these two verses, and it's the, hopefully the point of this message, and it's, it's really the title of the message, that He has given us everything we need. Now, I think most of us in this room that are believers would believe that and confess that. I certainly believe that and confess that, but it is much more challenging to actually make that the reality, the reality from which we live by in our lives. He has given us everything we need that pertains to life, not only eternal life to be be reconciled to God the Father. We'll talk about that in a moment. Certainly Jesus has given us that by his sinless life, his, his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection. But he's also given us everything we need to live for that future hope of being with him. And how has he done that? What has he done that? Well, that's what the rest of these verses are going to explain to us. But first, let's just draw some implications from this half sentence that really is the point of this passage and the point of this message that Peter is telling us that God has given us everything we need. Salvation, the Christian life, is not a kind of head start And some people think this, that it's a kind of start where God sort of sets you up for success through salvation, and then you have to figure it out on your own. That's not the message of the gospel. It's not the message of this text. He has given us everything we need. 
We don't need to go outside of Christ. We don't need to go outside of the Bible to know how to live and to navigate life in these dark days. That's not to say that there aren't aspects of truth that God gives us in his common grace and other aspects of society. Certainly he does. But it is to say that everything that the Christian needs to interpret, to view, to engage with, and to live life in this world is contained in what God has given us in the gospel and what God has explained to us about everything we need in his word. This passage is advocating for and establishing the important doctrine of the sufficiency of God's word for his people. And what are some implications for this? Now these are just two two examples. We could spend a lot of time just thinking about implications of this. These are just two examples that I see that are prevalent amongst Christians. I see it sometimes in my own heart in our day, and I don't mean in any way to be antagonistic in these two examples that I want to give where I think Christians are prone to go outside of, to look outside of what God has given us in the gospel and in his word to sort of interpret life or to put their hope in these things. I don't in any way mean to be antagonistic. These are just pastoral concerns. I don't want this to be a doctrine that just kind of hovers above us and doesn't actually touch down in life. So what are some examples where I see Christians prone to trust in other things rather than all things that he has given to us for life and godliness? Well, the first is that I think in this particular day and age, we are prone to look for answers and hope and interpretive lenses through political and social ideologies. Now this is both, I think this pops up clearly on both the political right and the left. First, the political right. I think that we are in a time of tension and stress and strain and division And I think people on the political right tend to communicate, even subconsciously or unwittingly, an over-trust in the hope of a political candidate or a political party or conservative values. Now, those things in and of themselves may not be bad, and they may be aspects of God's common grace by which a Christian may feel called to advocate for the good of society, But the problem is, is that I think Christians in our stream, maybe even some Christians in this church, are prone to making an idol out of political processes and candidates and platforms and parties. And what it does is it slowly becomes a kind of ideology where we feel like the hope for our nation or the hope for our culture or the hope for our society is in the advancement of particular political perspectives. Those things may be, in a sort of temporal sense, helpful. I'm not saying that we shouldn't advocate for certain things. But friends, beware of putting your hope in political parties and ideologies, even if those ideologies are things that you think are good for culture. I'm not saying that we should not be involved in the political process. I think you should vote, and if they'll let you, vote often. But 
That was a joke, by the way. Some but, friends, guard your heart from pinning your hopes in a particular candidate. And guard your hearts from putting your hope in a particular candidate who is prone to say things or prone to act in ways that are very hard to, in fact, can't be defended biblically. You communicate to the world that your hope is in some ideology that may bump up against some biblical values, but oftentimes does not. And it communicates to the world that you care more about political victory than you do about the holiness of God. And it also communicates, I think, a kind of unwitting man-centeredness, a kind of, a kind of hope in man as the controller of his own des destiny. Be beware of political pundits that will get on the news cycle and sort of cast a kind of doom that if this particular person gets elected, it's the end of the world as we know it. Friends, that is not a tenable perspective for a Christian who believes in the utter and good providence of God in all things. Don't, don't buy into that, that fear-mongering. Now, on the political left, there are also ideologies that I think draw Christians' hearts away from putting their, their hope and their trust in the sufficiency of God's Word. Worldly ideologies that are being promoted today, such as critical race theory and intersectionality, and if you don't know what those are, those maybe phrases that you're hearing for the first time, they are political and social ideologies that seek to interpret some of the problems in our culture regarding race relations and just the difference in socioeconomic situations between different classes of people. There may be some things that are mentioned in those ideologies that are true, but the problem with them is that they make people, they sort of subconsciously disciple people to identify themselves primarily not as being in Christ, but as part of a particular subculture or ethnic group or whatever it may be. And they, I think, unwittingly, or they, wittingly, but unwittingly to the person, train people to see themselves as perpetual victims as the innocent who have continually been sinned against. And on some level, those things may be true depending on the situation. But in regards to what it means to be reconciled to Christ, if we continually run our life through this grid that we are always the victim because this world system is against me, we will start to think of ourselves as the innocent victim all the time. And the Bible runs against that line of thinking. Friends, we are not victims when it comes to our most important relationship, which is God. We are the perpetrators. And the gospel has the answer that we need to be reconciled with God through his son Christ because of our sin, because of how we have offended God. 
And once we are reconciled to him, then we are reconciled to our brothers and sisters. And to be reconciled to one another is not some redistribution of political power or whatever. It's to be in Christ where we together are reconciled and seek to live holy lives together as God's people, whether we are of one particular group or another. So the political right and the political left and white people and black people and brown people and every other shade of people are prone. We're all prone to put our hope to look for answers in things outside of what verse 3 is telling us. One more that I just need to mention pastorally, and I don't mean any antagonism, but I think it bears mentioning. There's this new rage amongst, I think, in particular, younger Christians, these personality tests, these Enneagrams. Um, let, me, let me pastorally just exhort you to be very wary of adopting those things as a lens through which you look at life. The problem with these personality tests is they classify, as I understand it, they have this one that's very popular now, the Enneagram has nine different personality types. And I actually looked at it. I listened to a podcast on it. It was all the rage. I knew nothing about it. So I thought, oh, well, I, I, need to, I need to understand this a little bit more. And it was amazing how kind of seductive, really, this test was. And some of the categories and descriptions of people. And I, I, I sort of saw myself as type one. And I love that type one because the, the, the name for this type one personality is reformer, which I thought, oh, like, wow, they, they even know my theology. I'm reformed. But that, that's not what it was talking about. It was, and it was all these things that I sort of said, oh, I'm like that. And there were some true statements in there. I think generally it had some things to say that I think were generally true. But the problem, friends, is that I've noticed I think especially amongst younger people that grab onto these things, is that you become so excited about this analysis of yourself and the people around you is you start living through this grid. You start, you start seeing, this becomes the interpretive lens through which you classify yourself and everybody around you. And although, because God is gracious in his ways, he gives common grace even to unregenerate people. There may be true things stated in them, but they can never take you where you actually need to go, which is the hope of the gospel. Yes, there are aspects of my personality, but there are aspects of my personality that need to change, and the only hope for that change can be found in what God has given me, all things that he's given me in life and godliness. And so I just want to say, dear ones, don't adopt some political ideology. Don't adopt some personality test that is very, very attractively sold to you by this wonderful website and great TED Talks and sharp presenters. Don't give in to those things as the interpretive lenses through which you live your life because when you do, you undermine the very truth of what Peter is saying here in the first half of this verse, that his divine power has granted to us all things. 
a biblical understanding of the fall, a biblical understanding of the sinfulness of man, a biblical understanding of the holiness of God, a biblical understanding of the redemption in Christ, a biblical understanding of the activity of the Holy Spirit, and a biblical understanding of the doctrine of Scripture, and a biblical understanding of the future is all that we need to interpret life in these dark days. I love you. My email is robert at insidecrosspoint.com. <laughs> and how has he granted to us all, this, all these things? Through the knowledge. Look at the next part. Through the knowledge of him. Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. We we receive these things. Just, just the, the logic of this verse is not complicated. How do we get these things? Through, by way of, the knowledge of him, Christ in his gospel, who has called us to his own glory and excellence. So through the study, through the discipline, through giving ourselves to taking in God's word, fellowship with Christians, communing together with his word, taking the Lord's Supper together, being a local church, confronting each other when we need to. All of these regular, ordinary, unspectacular means of grace that God gives his people causes us to know him more, and then we grow in Christ. And it's, it's not glamorous but it is glorious. And we understand in every other area of life that it takes work, it takes just grit, and sometimes it's a kind of grind and it's a little boring. I mean, we understand that in academics. If you want to get a degree, sometimes you just got to crank it out and just put your nose to the grindstone and read the boring book that you don't like on American history or whatever. And sometimes, you know, if you want to if you want to train for a marathon, I, I, again, I've said this before, I can't imagine why you'd want to do that, but some people do. If you want to train for a marathon, sometimes when your legs don't feel like it, you just have to put in the miles. And if you're a musician or an artist and you just don't feel like practicing your instrument, sometimes you just got to grind it out. You got to go to the studio. You got to do what you got to do and you got to learn how to play that piece of music even when you don't feel like it. We seem to understand that in every other area of life, but because of the cheapness and the shallowness of much of American preaching, we tend to think that the spiritual life should just kind of be handed to us like a gift. And certainly the grace of the gospel and salvation is handed to us. But now the life that we live after we've been made alive is a grind and a grit and a buckling down and giving yourself to knowing God more through his word and through fellowship with other believers. And this is just the heart of the gospel. Through the knowledge of him, through knowing what he has done, through knowing that Jesus has called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, I, I, this, this, this little phrase here, I just spent kind of the second half of the week thinking about meditating on the beauty of this little portion of this passage. 
who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Again, I think the subject of the verb is Jesus. And it's speaking about the effective call of the Lord. He's called us. He's speaking of Christians. And what has he called us to? His own glory and excellence. Let's just think about the effective call of God. God's call creates what it commands. This is how you became a Christian. He called you and you were dead in your sins and he made you alive. When you read the word calling, oftentimes in the New Testament, you, you, want, you should think about it's the life-giving word of God that makes a dead heart alive. It creates life where there was death. The calling of God is not presented in the New Testament as if God is surveying the world and he's looking to see who might be a good candidate or who seems to be putting forth some effort. That's not the picture of the gospel. It's not the picture of the situation. The Bible is clear. Romans chapter three tells us that we are all sinful. We are all dead in our sins. We are all running away from God. All of our mouths are silenced before God. And the glorious good news of the gospel is that the way God makes us his own is he calls us. He says to our dead hearts when we're in the tomb, just like he said to Lazarus, get up. And that dead heart, because the word of God hits us, makes us alive. And he brings life where there was death. And he enables us to hear his word and respond to it in faith and trust in Jesus. That's what it means to be born again, to be saved. Listen to how the word call is it's presented in some New Testament passages. Romans chapter 4, verse 17. Paul's speaking about Abraham, this old man who was in his 90s. Who there's no way a nation could come through him where he was, in a sense, dead and God made him alive. He says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Listen to this. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That means that God gives life in his calling. That's the gospel. It's the free grace of the gospel. Romans 8 verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. So he called them. He called their names and caused them to get up from death. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So all those that he called, it's an effective call. It's a call that works 100% of the time in this sense in Romans 8 verse 30. All those that he called are justified, meaning they're saved. And all those that are justified make it all the way home to glorification. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 in his first letter, Peter says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's not like we ran out of darkness and said, we're here, it's been dark, now we want light. He called us out of our lostness, out of our darkness into his marvelous light. I think this is clearly what Jesus is speaking about in John 6. When he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And only those that the Father draws can come to me. So if you're a Christian, 
He has given you, just follow the logic of what Peter is saying here. He's given you everything you need. He's given it to you through the knowledge of him who called you to his own glory and excellence. So he's done it. He's given you everything you need, and the way that you got it was through the sovereign calling of God where he made you alive. He gave you the knowledge of Jesus, and now as we'll read in the coming verses and the coming weeks, the rest of the Christian life is adding to, is, is doing the work of, of giving yourself more and more to God in sanctification. But notice these verses here. Notice these words. What does he call us to? He calls us to his own glory and excellence. So when Jesus calls a person, he calls people to himself, and they perceive the beauty and the loveliness of his person. He's calling us, he's, he's calling us, he's calling you, if you're a believer, to himself, to his beauty, to his own glory and excellence. I take this to mean that he is bringing us to himself. And he is, this is how it works. Don't think of the calling as, don't think of the calling as you're dead in your sin and he just kind of knocks you over the head and like duck, duck, damned, and you just make you alive and you come with me. How does he draw a person? Jesus, when he opens up a heart to save that person, he calls them to his own glory, his own excellence, his own irresistible beauty. And he makes himself, he opens our dead eyes so that Jesus and his way becomes so irresistibly attractive, so altogether lovely that it overwhelms the dead heart and it brings life to it. And where there was no faith, he implants faith and he gives eyes to see and he calls dead sinners who have no right to draw near to him. He calls them to himself and he gives them eyes to see how beautiful his character is. And when they shrink away saying there's no way I can approach you, he gives them eyes to see that he's giving them his righteousness. And we can come to him. Jesus calls us sinners, wicked lepers, spiritual lepers to himself, and he is irresistibly beautiful. That's the calling. It's, salvation is not just getting downloaded some knowledge where we can navigate through life. It's being called to Christ. It's fellowship with him. It's seeing him in the scripture. It's falling in love with Jesus. It's, it's being transformed by seeing the glory of the Son of God in the gospel. And it's being overwhelmed at how beautiful he is. And his beauty changes us from the inside out. That's, that's how spiritual change happens. We, we, we behold the most beautiful person in the universe, God himself in Christ, and is so glorious and it's so excellent that our hearts are melted, our prior resistance is worn down, and we are attracted. Our desire is now not for all of these counterfeit beauties, but our desire becomes for Christ in his way because his way is more satisfying because his beauty is more lovely than anything else that we could chase after. And that's, that's what he's calling you to if you're a Christian. 
You just see this over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus calls lepers to himself. He calls sinners. He calls prostitutes. He calls state traders like Matthew, who is a tax collector, selling out his own people to Rome. He, He calls broken people, and he brings them to himself. And his beauty in and of itself is transformative. And it's everything we need. And it just keeps getting better. We're just another layer now. Verse 4. By which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This phrase here at the beginning of verse 4 is just so, it's so good. He's granted to us his precious and very great promises. So his promises, which flow from his glory and excellence, we see them, we behold them, and we get a picture of how glorious he is, and they, they transform us. Something that you might want to do. I just, this, I've just been sort of meditating on this phrase, precious and very great promises. And he's saying to us that the way we come to know Christ and the way we come to be called to him and what we get when we get called to him is through these precious and very great promises. And the Bible is full of things that God has said to his people about who they are now in Christ as a result of being called to him. And I just started this little habit this week of writing these initials, and the, the, the initials of just a, a kind of acronym, PVGP, Precious and Very Great Promises, next to every verse that I see that is a promise of who I am in Christ. So here's, I just, I just started a little list here for myself. Ezekiel 36, this Old Testament promise of what the gospel will do, this new covenant will do in the hearts of his people. This is the prophet Ezekiel speaking for God, God speaking through Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall... Man, there's people in this room that are struggling with uncleanness. They're struggling with sin, and you know you're a Christian, but the possibility of sanctification and victory over sin seems a million miles away. You need to, right now, you need to grab a hold of this precious and very great promise. Listen to this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice the conditions of these very great promises in Ezekiel 36. There are none. It is simply what God has said he will do independent of any worthiness in the people. He will do it if you're a Christian. He will take out your old heart. He will give you a new one. He will put his spirit in you and he will cause you over time to take God's side against your sin and walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Here's another one, Romans 8, 
verse 31 and 32. This is a precious and very great promise. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a rhetorical question. It means no one. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's a precious and very great promise. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will. He, it's not he might. He will do it. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. That's a precious and very great promise, meaning that no matter what you're going through, somehow God is using to produce in you an eternal weight of glory that will beyond, it is beyond any compare to the thing that you're going through now. That's a precious and very great promise. Well, friends, here's where the rubber meets the road. And this is, this is a problem for me, and I think it's a problem for many of us. I think this is a problem for many American Christians. Will we stop long enough to look at and dwell on these promises and the truths of the Scripture? Will we rush and miss it? Will we let it be like water that just skims off our back? Will, will, will we just move on to the next thing? We're prone, we're, we're, we're tuned by our culture to want to feel good, to want a quick fix, a quick answer, a cheap high, a cheap spiritual high. But the question is, will we slow down and meditate and dwell on and marinate and grab onto these promises as if our life depended on it? Because it does. And it takes, it takes effort to do that. And I, I, I'm just hoping, I'm pleading that for us, that this passage would cause many of us, if not all of us, to do that. And when we see this, when we, when we see these precious and great promises, they have a kind of transformative effect in our life. It's, it's this beautiful spiritual truth that beholding, to behold God, to behold what He said is true of us, is to be transformed. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Listen to verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. So notice Paul's logic in the second half of verse 18 as we behold the glory of the Lord. And how do you behold the glory of the Lord? Through the scriptures, through the sufficiency of all that he's given us, through these precious and very great promises, through what he said is true of you if you're a Christian. You, you behold that, you see the good news of the gospel, you see the glory of God in the Son, of, in the Son Christ, and it causes us to be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
But all, you know what? There's a new Netflix special coming out, so I've got to catch that. And I've got to blow six hours on that this week. And then I'm going to complain because the Bible's hard to understand. Amen? All right, it's getting hot in here, so we'll, we'll hurry on and finish. And he says, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. <laughs> now that's a precious and very great promise. Well, what does this not mean? It does not mean that we become little gods in the sense that we have a divine nature like Jesus. This is the teaching of some false teachers in the prosperity and health and wealth gospel movements that you can find on these goofy channels like TBN. Don't watch that junk. It's garbage. It's spiritual pollution. And they teach because they wrongly understand who Christ is. They teach that Jesus divested, he stopped being God in some way in his earthly life and that the miracles that he did and the overcoming sinless life that he lived on earth was a result of his full submission as a mere man to God that because Jesus did that, then that is somehow possible for us to do. That is a heresy. It's wrong. Jesus was fully man but he always has been and always will be fully God. He is divine. He is not like us. We are not like him in that sense. And this scripture is not saying that we can become little gods. But it is saying this glorious truth that through all of these things that God has given us, not all of these ideologies, not the latest thing to hit the presses, not the latest cool website, but just through this simple, beautiful word that he's given us and this rhythm of the Christian life that he's given us, that we can become partakers, we can share, we can become like him. And that's the very great and most precious promise of them all that we find in Romans 8.29, which is the goal of our redemption. Listen to this. This is a precious and very great promise. Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, that means he, in eternity past, decided to love you, not because of anything good or bad in you. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, meaning he predetermined that you would end up somewhere. And where would you end up? To this place where he says, to be conformed to the image of his son. So that's the final goal of salvation, not just merely to make it to heaven, but that if you're a Christian, you, if you're saved and called to him and you behold the glory of his excellence and the beauty, the irresistible nature of who he is, something is happening in you. You're becoming more like Jesus and you will be conformed to be like him, not to be a God yourself, but you will be like him where you will on that day finally be free and you will be with him forever. That's happening to you. And you need to see that. We need to see that. We need to rest in that. We need to meditate. We need to grab a hold of that. And we need to not let go. Because that's where we're going if we're believers. And so run. 
run from any explanation of the Christian life that's short of that. Run from people that teach the scriptures as just merely a pragmatic way for you to be a better leader or for you to navigate through life with tips on how to manage your anger and overcome this and that and get out of debt. All those things may be true, and there's wisdom for all that in the Bible. But this, this is the all things that he's given us so that we might, we might live in this world. And he says, finally, having escaped from corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Well, we'll pick up on this next week. But just note here this, this worldview on his concluding thought. The world is corrupt. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. The world's corrupt. It's a fallen place. And salvation, he depicts here as an escape from that world. So let's be people that believe these precious and very great promises. That he has given us everything we need. Now before I pray, maybe a confession that might help you. I believe everything I've said to you, but I have a lot of difficulty living it out. I feel like the, the man in Mark chapter 9, I believe it is, when he brings his son to Jesus and he says, and Jesus asks him if he can, you know, do you believe I can heal this? And the, the, the man says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so, don't take this as somebody who's arrived and is scolding you, boys and girls, because you need to do better. No, 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 no. I, I, I believe that he's given me everything I need for life and godliness. But I confess I don't always live that way. I think that's true of you too. Because we're Facebook friends, many of us. <laughs> and so I think we need to help each other. I think this is the great battle of the Christian life, that we would believe this more and more. Now, I need his word. I need to remember that his spirit dwells in me, and I need you. Let's pray. Lord, uh, these things are true, but help us really believe them. There is more power and depth and beauty in these two verses than all the psychology books in all of the world. The question for us today is, will we slow down long enough to actually live from this verse and fight for it, fight to work it into our hearts more and more? We all suffer from gospel amnesia. Help us, Lord, cure us from that. Give us manna for today that we might not walk in amnesia, spiritual amnesia. Lord, help us, I pray. Help my friends. In Jesus' name, amen.